Um, if you were not here last week, um, I would really encourage you to go back and uh, give it a listen. Um, it's a pretty emotional time, I think, not only for me, but for a lot of folks. Is what we've really been trying to do during this series, as you can see, is called Abounding in Love, is we're kind of trying to wrap our minds around um, God's just unbelievable love for us. It sees impossible that God, knowing everything about every one of us, would still love us as we are. And we've talked about that love isn't something that God feels or does, it's who he is. It's his very nature. God is love. And that has some implications for us. And he invites us to surrender to that love. And he reminds us is that it's not something that we earn through good behavior. And it's not something we can lose through poor performance as a follower of his. But it's a gift to be received uh, because we are all incredibly precious to him. And because we can trust his intentions are good, we've talked about that we can relax in his presence. He's not out to get us. <laughs> He's looking and longing to bless us. And so in the presence of that kind of father, we can relax and receive what he desperately wants to shower on us. And we took a look at Jesus' own ministry and how it began. The very first thing that he did was that he went and got baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And as he comes up out of the water, um, God's voice echoes from heaven his affirmation for his son. He says, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. And so the very first thing that Jesus did was that he received the father's love for him. And then once he did that, he didn't rush right out and start doing all kinds of miracles and stuff. It says that the spirit led him into the wilderness for 40 days. And there he was tested and he was strengthened and he continued to commune and rely and depend on the father. And that just gives us another kind of example of how what God really wants is our hearts, not, not our performance. And so Jesus modeled that for us. And then last week, we took a look at a powerful passage in Ephesians 2. And in that passage, starting in verse 1, Paul gives us a very clear picture of our reality apart from Jesus. He starts off and he says that, that we were all dead in our transgressions and sins by nature deserving of wrath but then God intervenes why Paul says because of his great love for us God who is rich in mercy did what he made us alive in Christ and raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms why the next verse said so that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We looked at a, an Old Testament verse that said this. It said, God delights to show us mercy. God takes joy in giving us what we don't deserve. He delights in it. And I hope you're allowing that powerful, illogical truth to wreck you more and more in your walk with him. So that kind of sets the stage for our discussion today. And today, as I said last week, we're going to kind of come down out of the high-level overview that we've been on, and we're going to get eye-level with Jesus as he interacts with broken humanity. So I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter 8 this morning. It's page 1523. 
I want to first just quickly uh, address the controversy uh, around this passage. If you see in your Bibles, um, you might have a little note there that says that in the earliest manuscripts that this, basically this story wasn't included. Um, and so I learned some things this week, so I want to pass it on to you. Um, so yes, in the original gospels that were written, this story wasn't in there, but there were a, a lot of stories about Jesus that were a part of the oral tradition. It was really that way for 30 or 40 years before a gospel was written down um, to begin with. So there was this just massive collection of stories about Jesus. And John, even later in his writing, says if we, there would not be enough books in the world if we included every story about Jesus. Well, what happened was, was that this story in particular was one that, that continued, continued to circle orally and was such just a strong story about Jesus's love and compassion that a lot of the early church leaders decided we've got to find a way to get this story into the gospels and so they inserted it they tried to figure out where can we put this into the gospels chronologically that makes the most sense and so John chapter 8 is kind of where they landed um, in terms of this fitting into the chron chronology of Jesus's ministry so none of them doubted that this didn't really happen it was just a story that wasn't initially included in the gospel. So just wanted to, to clear that up. If you ever had any questions, I hope that makes a little bit of sense. So if you look back, if you can just kind of peruse over John chapter 7, we can kind of see what's going on. Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a, a Jewish holiday, just like Passover. You know, other holidays where the Jews would, would make a pilgrimage um, to Jerusalem to celebrate. So the streets are kind of crowded with, with these pilgrims. Um, that are there and in the midst of that week Jesus is teaching in the temple courts and he begins to kind of challenge the religious leaders if you look at the conversation that happens in John chapter 7 it's kind of a, a tense uh, conversation going on they're kind of going at each other these Jewish religious leaders and Jesus and the next day which would have been a Sabbath Jesus appears again in the temple courts and this large crowd gathers to hear him teach and so that's where we are as we start in verse 3 of chapter 8 today <clears throat> it says the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus teacher this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women now what do you say they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So I want you to try to imagine, you know, Jesus sitting there, kind of peacefully teaching this crowd of interested listeners that have come to hear him that morning. And then all of a sudden you kind of hear this rumbling of this angry mob kind of coming towards these temple courts where they were and they're dragging a woman to the center of the stage can you feel the tension of that moment 
and the religious leaders are bringing this woman there to, to really kind of embarrass her and to kind of make this really awkward and embarrassing scene for Jesus and to kind of force an issue of him having to do something. Because the reality is, is that they could have kept her in custody somewhere else until a verdict was reached about what to do with her. But instead they chose to make this thing kind of this big dramatic spectacle. And we'll look at some reasons why. So let's take a moment to try to see this woman. Imagine the fear that she's experiencing. The shame. She's been grabbed on the heels of a dark and very personal mistake, filled with shame, and brought before a religious leader in the temple of all places, like the center of Jewish worship. What's the most shameful and dark moment from your own story? Can you just kind of get there in your memory? Caught in an affair? Caught looking at things online you shouldn't have been? Stealing money? Lying? Cheating? Maybe it was an explosive outburst at work or at home or with your kids? Maybe it's not something that you did. Maybe it's something that you didn't do didn't stand up for someone, didn't show up for a friend. And maybe in that moment you were met with judgment and condemnation, maybe even from church people. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but when I have those moments in my life where I feel ashamed of something, I have a, a bodily reaction. <laughs> my chest gets really tight. I tend to kind of like heat kind of rushes over me. I get kind of nauseous in my stomach because I'm starting to like dread what are going to be the consequences of what I've done. How's this all going to play out? Maybe your way of dealing with shame is some people just get defiant and they get angry and they look for ways to fight their way out of whatever predicament they've gotten themselves into. We all probably handle shame differently but there's a lot at stake here in this scene right because the pharisees are throwing around the death sentence and and you know in particular stoning to death which basically is just a person standing there just getting pelted with rocks one after another until they die pretty gruesome and slow way to go about it So the question I want to bring to us this morning is what does abounding in love look like in this moment? How does Jesus enter in? Well, luckily, Jesus sees the circus for what it is. He knows all of this is just an attempt to trap him. But Jesus also knows the law, the Old Testament law. Some people call it the Mosaic law. He knows it better than anyone. And he knows that in this particular situation that they're charging this woman with, that there have to be two eyewitnesses with the exact same account kind of corroborating the story. And as you can imagine with the sensitivity of this situation, it'd probably be pretty hard to find two people. (laughs) 
outside of those folks involved that could, that, that could say, yeah, we saw exactly what happened and this is, this is how it went down. Leviticus 20.10 also says that both the man and the woman are to be put to death. But the adulterous man is nowhere to be found. They're trying to get Jesus to enforce the rules, but they're not even following the rules, okay? And besides, as we've seen on several occasions back in our um, Slow to Anger series, Jesus has been raising compassion and love, the higher laws of mercy, above rule following most of the time anyways, right? We took a look at several instances where the rule on the Sabbath was that you couldn't heal anybody, but Jesus did anyways. They think if he lets her go, he'll, be, he'll, he'll, he'll appear to be breaking the law of Moses. They know that if, they, if he says, yeah, let's execute her, then the crowd's going to be like, wow, that seems really harsh and cruel. And if, if he does call for an execution, the Romans have actually taken that power out of the hands of the Jews. So only the Romans can, can give that definitive, yes, you can execute somebody, which is why the Jews had to get the Romans involved to get rid of Jesus. So he'd also be going against the Romans if he said, yeah, let's execute her. So they think that they've got Jesus in this really sticky situation he's not going to be able to get out of. Okay. So here's the first thing you notice about Jesus in this story. To the Pharisees, this woman is just a pawn, right? Like her, her person is insignificant to them. She's just being used. But to Jesus, she's deeply valued. And he shows her worth by how he responds in verse 6. It says that he bends down. Another translation says that he stoops. It's his posture of humility. And he's identifying with the humiliation of the woman. And it reminds me that, that Jesus describes himself in Scripture. We've talked about this a lot lately, as being, as being gentle and humble in heart. That's Jesus' self-description of who he is and what his nature is. And then he begins writing in the dirt with his finger. And immediately, two things are happening. The first is that all the attention now is off of the woman. Everybody's trying to figure out why is Jesus writing on the ground, okay? Secondly, is that he's showing everybody that he's in control. And he won't be pressured or rushed into a hasty judgment of what's going to happen here, okay? Now, there's some really interesting stuff uh, about this whole writing thing that I learned for the first time. I've read this story a bunch of times, but in studying this week, uh, there's some things that came out that I was like, wow, this is super interesting. So the Greek word used for write in this story here is katagraphini, which translates to this, to write down a record against someone. So they chose to describe Jesus' writing in the dirt and they've used the, the language that would, that, would, that would mean to write down a record against someone. Okay? Jesus knows exactly what he's doing right now. Check this out. I want you to look at this verse from Jeremiah se several hundred years before this event. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Okay? You see some parallels between this 
Old Testament prophecy and what's going on this morning. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they've forsaken you, the spring of living water. Now, I want you guys to look in your Bibles at John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38. So just look back a chapter before at the discussion that Jesus had just had with the crowds. Leave that verse up there if you could. It says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow, flow from within them. What did just Jesus just offered them? He just offered them what? This is like an open book test for college students, okay? What did he just offer them? Look at it. What does it say? This is not complicated. Living water, right? Maybe I should have put two blanks so you guys would know I'm looking for a two-word answer here, okay? Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. <laughs> you see how this is all weaving together here in this moment? Some scholars think that Jesus was writing down the sins of all the accusers that day. But that's what he was writing in the dust. Jesus was keenly aware of the sins of every person in the temple courts that morning. Just like he would be about every one of us here today as well. If you remember in the story of um, the woman at the well, one of the things that she says when she goes back to town is, come and listen to the man who knew everything about me. Right? Jesus immediately knows you've been married five times. The guy that you're with right now is not your husband. Right? I mean, he knows every sin of every person. And they seem to think that Jesus is ignoring them as he's writing in the ground. So they keep pestering him for an answer. You know, what are you going to do about this? Finally, he rises to his feet and he utters those famous words. Let anyone who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. Instead of passing a sentence on the woman, he passes a sentence on the accusers. He didn't say don't execute her, but demanded that justice be fairly and righteously applied. Basically saying, hey, if we're going to follow the law of Moses, then let's do it right. And it made me think this, <laughs> we have this incredible ability to want to see others get punished while ignoring our own sin, don't we? Man, we really like people seeing and get what they deserve. But we really like to not get what we deserve, <laughs> right? And Jesus shows love here by confronting the sin of everyone in the scene. That was love that morning. He puts every sin present in the temple that day on equal grounds. 
adultery, pride and arrogance, judgment, gossip, slander, whatever was there. (laughs) I want to ask you guys this question. How should that knowledge affect the way we relate to one another in biblical community? The knowledge that Jesus treated every sin as equal that day. Not that the consequences are equal, right? Because we all know that certain sins have, have greater, possibly deeper consequences. But in terms of how he treated every person in the room that day, everybody was on equal ground. So how should that knowledge affect the way we relate to one another in biblical community? Let's see if we can do better than the last time I asked you a question, all right? Let's go. I'm giving you another chance. Yeah, Rob. Yeah, it should give us a lot of grace, right? For ourselves and others. Because part of it is having the grace that when we're being unjustly attacked by somebody else, that we don't own that in a way that makes us feel less than them. Does that make sense? What else? Yeah, Brad. Yeah. 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 It's just that awareness of our of our own sin should remove our desire to figure out who else is messing up all the time. Yeah, read. Yeah, that's really good. He just said that our sin's not connected to our sense of value, right? He doesn't equate how valuable we are to the sins that we commit. Any other thoughts about just how we treat one another in community? Yeah, Chris. I think it just includes our compassion for our brothers and sisters. Mm. Yeah, it should increase our compassion for other people who are just struggling, right? Because when we're struggling, we want to be treated with compassion, you know? It gets back to the golden rule, doesn't it, right? Treat others as you want to be treated. Like, how, how would you want to be treated in your darkest, most shameful moment? Treat other people that way, right? In theirs. Yeah, I would just say take what everybody's saying and put it all together and be aware of all that. Mm, yeah, it's good. And guys, what I love about how Jesus handles this is that everything that he does in this story is just kind of oozes out just gentleness and humility, right? His whole posture, he never shouts, he never intimidates anyone. And here's the thing is that he somehow turns this circus act into a safe environment for everyone in the room to examine themselves with sincerity. Like he takes the intention of what this whole, this angry mob was trying to do and he flips the whole thing upside down 
so that everyone leaves examining themselves. I mean, I read that this week and I was like, God, that is leadership. That is a use of power. You want to talk about a leader that's showing healthy power? It's, it's not just, you know, play, placating to one person who has the loudest voice and the angriest mob, but it's flipping it around so that everybody examines themselves at all times. <laughs> like, that is so humble. Friends, when we confront others, because Jesus does confront her here, but it just has to be done with humility. Paul shares this beautiful verse Galatians 6 says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. He doesn't end with confront the sin and restore them gently, which is, that's a great <laughs> to do that. But he describes what that process would look like. He says, restoring them gently would look like this. Carry their burdens. Just like Jesus did when he carried each one of our burdens to the cross. Right? Guys, the easiest thing in the world to do I know I have this conversation with my kids. <laughs> the easiest thing to do is to point out the flaws in other people. I mean, they're on display pretty easily in all of our lives every day. And if I wanted to, any person that I know, I could go around and kind of pick all the easy fruit, man. You're kind of a jerk. You lie a lot. I don't like the way you look. I mean, whatever. You know what I mean? It's easy. Guys, listen, the greater love is coming alongside a brother and sister who maybe you do love enough to, to once in a while you have to kind of point out, guys, I, I, this is just a way that I, I don't see you reflecting Christ very well and I love you and so I, I want you to stop hurting yourself and others. But listen, I'm, I'm not going to stop there. And so it's continuing to have that conversation to say, hey, I want to walk with you on your healing path. And maybe that's you've got to get counseling or, you know, we, I need to meet with you and pray regularly or we need to be in a Bible study and really explore this topic or whatever it is. It's this additional commitment to, to come alongside and to bear burdens. That's what the Pharisees weren't willing to do. The Pharisees stood at a distance and just tried to point out all the flaws in everybody else and let them know how much they had how much work they had to do. But there was no sense of community and togetherness in it. They just wanted their people to get their, you know, their pound of flesh and get their punishment. And I just want to say big picture, <laughs> I'm sorry to anyone in here who has been hurt by people in church. And, uh, you know, when I am on Twitter um, just looking at different things, more and more, I hear, I hear and see more and more stories of people sharing their pain of church experiences. That is just 
made them just want to walk away. I know many of them have from church, from their faith, because of how they've been treated by really in un-Jesus-like ways, by people who claim to be representing Christ. And if that's your story, I just want to tell you I'm sorry. If you've been hurt here at Wellspring or been hurt by me, I want to tell you I'm sorry. If you want to share that with me, I'll be happy to own it and apologize. But those stories are just heartbreaking to me. And guys, as a church, as, as ambassadors for Jesus, we've got to be better in how we care for people. So Jesus throws this cast the first stone bomb out. <laughs> And then he stoops down and he starts writing again. And verse 9 says this. It says, those who heard began to go away one at a time. Those who heard began to go away one at a time. And as I read that, I was like, I'm pretty sure everybody heard Jesus. But there's this difference between hearing with your ears and hearing with your heart. And I think what the writer is saying is everyone that really kind of understood what Jesus was getting at that heard the heart behind it, they begin to walk away as they slowly became more aware of their own sin than the sin of the woman, right? And it says that one, of the, one at a time they dropped their stones and walked away. And, and the Greek word they use there um, implies that they did it like a single file procession out of the temple. And the one person perfect enough and sinless enough to have thrown a stone, Jesus, he's the only one left with the woman. And I can't imagine what that moment must have looked like and felt like when in verse 10, Jesus stands up and in her darkest hour looks her in the eye and says, You're forgiven. think about that whole scene and what she thought she had coming to her and then what she got at the end because you see Jesus knew he'd soon be bearing her sin and shame upon himself just a few short months some people in this world delight in condemnation and judgment Jesus delights in mercy and forgiveness. Scripture tells us that love covers over a multitude of sins. Guys, is our heart to expose sin or is our heart to cover over sin? What do you delight in? I want to be a person that has grace, <laughs> that's known for their grace and covering over other people's mistakes is, man, I know what it feels like to be protected by brothers and sisters in Christ when I fail and to feel covered by people. And that, that feels unbelievably great. <laughs> Guys, let's look at verse 11 as we wrap up. Help us flesh out what, what love looked like in verse 11. Because Jesus doesn't ignore her sin. So what did love look like in verse 11? How did he speak love and how he responded? Any thoughts? 
Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she's saying that Jesus not only just forgives her, but calls her into the better version of herself, right? He knows what she's capable of, the gifts and abilities that he's given her. She settled for this life that wasn't what he created her for. And he says, there's something better for you out there I've called you to. Go be that person, right? It's this hope. It's one thing to tell somebody they screwed up. It's another thing to say, come on, man. I, I know you, you, you've got so much better you can be doing right now. I want to help you become that person, right? Let's do this together. He acknowledges the sin, right? Calls her to repent, leave that life, right? That's a repentance. That's a turning away from where you were and going in a new direction and gives her hope for the future. I love how John 3, 17 beautifully describes Jesus' mission. It says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. makes you think about the the Christians holding those signs at all the rallies, right? (laughs) Condemning everybody. Uh. It's interesting that Jesus closes with leave your life of sin. That that seems like a pretty impossible command, doesn't it? (laughs) Here's what I think he's trying to say. Jesus is talking about our ruling desire, okay? Because every one of us is going to sin until the day we go meet him, every day of our life, okay? But our strongest, most consistently growing desire should be to obey God. That should be the ruling desire of our heart. My guess is that that woman... (laughs) didn't struggle with honoring Jesus for a while at least. I mean, she realized that he had kind of pulled her out of a desperate situation and loved her in ways that she maybe felt like she didn't deserve. I'm sure her motivation, her ruling desire was to not sin for a while. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And I want to end with this today. Are we equally open, open to receiving his love when we fail as when we feel like we're firing on all spiritual cylinders? Are we equally open to receiving his love when we fail as when we feel like we're firing on all spiritual cylinders? Guys, he already welcomed and received us at the cross. The moment that we surrendered to his grace, he embraced the full us, warts and all. He knew every problem we were going to have the rest of our lives. And he said, hey, you're mine. And we're going to work through all that stuff together. And Paul reminds us that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. In our darkest hour, our most shame-filled moment that maybe you could think about in your story 
That's when Jesus is drawn to us the most. Because that's when we're most aware of our need for a savior. And he delights to come in and show us mercy in those moments. Are we willing to receive his love when we feel most unworthy? I want to end with this quote today from Taria Moore. It says, as believers, we must develop the discipline to run boldly to God in our sin just as swiftly as we run to him in our joy. A lot of times when we've messed up, if you're a kid in here and you've done something wrong, our natural inclination, like Adam and Eve in the garden, is to hide. And our shame, try to cover up. Right? Because we know that we've made a mistake. But the Father comes through the garden and says, Where are you? Right? I know you need me in this moment more than ever because you've blown it. And I want to surprise you with my compassion and mercy and love for you, even when you feel like you're at your worst. Can you receive that today? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that your love um, just flips a story like this upside down. And what was meant to be this horrific moment of accusation and uh, condemnation and possibly execution becomes instead this very humble and solemn moment where everyone becomes aware of their brokenness and puts everybody on level ground. And that's what you came to do. You came to remind us that we are all in equal need of you. From the Caesar or Pilate in the story to the, the leper and the blind man. We are all those people. We all need you. So God, I, I pray that we would be humble enough to receive your love in our darkest moments. And I pray that we would just be humble enough to just be gracious and kind to our friends in their darkest times as well. That we would do what Paul commands us to do and we would carry each other's burdens and not look just to accuse, but look to be a part of the healing and restoration process. God, we love you. Um, we're overwhelmed. <laughs> by your unbelievable love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we close?